0: We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation.
1: Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You are listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast, bringing you big science from the small island of Tasmania. We are proudly supported by EDGE Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. So head to edgeradio.org.au for more information about all the good things that they are doing. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host, Kelsey Pickard. Kelsey, can you briefly introduce us to our guest today and then help us get to know them a little bit better?
0: Sure. So today um, we're joined with uh, Madeline Dr. Madeline Cairns-Murphy, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at the School of Natural Sciences at the University of Tasmania. Um, So Maddie researches the impact of drought and heat on plant productivity, reproduction and mortality, which is super important for understanding how both natural vegetation and crops respond to climate change. Okay, so just to get started, Maddie, we're going to have some quick fire questions. Um, So cheese or chocolate? Ooh, cheese, definitely. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Summer or winter? Winter, actually. Interesting. Shower or bath? Shower. (laughs) Running or
2: cycling? (laughs) Uh, Running, yeah. Comedy or horror? Definitely comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Beach or lake? Mm, That's a tricky one for me. Maybe beach. Still or sparkling? Mm,
0: Still. Snakes or spiders? Mm. (laughs) Hmm. (laughs)
2: If it's worse or better, which would you prefer? (laughs) Um, mm, Spiders. (laughs) (laughs) And last, um,
0: scrambled or fried? Scrambled. Nice.
1: Awesome, thanks so much Kelsey and great to meet you Maddie. Thanks for coming in today. So I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa people, as we record on Lutra and acknowledge the traditional owners of the land wherever you are listening to our show. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So it sounds, Kelsey, like this is a very topical subject that we're going to discuss today. So what are you kicking off the show with?
0: Yeah, what I would love to start talking um with Maddie about how plants use water in general. So, your research focuses on plants and their relationship with drought, um, but how do plants use water? Most of our listeners will know that uh, the roots are an important part of the plant to take up the water, but what happens next?
2: Yeah, so um, plants are in fact use a lot more water than animals, like much, much more, water, way more dependent on it. <coughs> so, it basically comes down to their their basic function and how they feed themselves, which is through photosynthesis. So they take light energy from the sun and use that to power the conversion of carbon dioxide into sugars, which they use for growth and reproduction. And the, the fact that in, um, in our atmosphere, carbon dioxide is at such low concentrations that in order to take up carbon dioxide, they need to um, exchange it for water. So in fact, the exchange ratio... Is something like you get one water molecule for five hundred carbon dioxide molecules, so they need to um, release a lot of water just to gain a little bit of carbon dioxide. So they're completely dependent on that on that process. They need to have a um, continuous column of water from the soil to the atmosphere at all times to yeah to stay alive and feed themselves basically.
0: Yeah. And so, how is the water getting from the soil up to the top where it's being released? Um, at the leaves i assume yeah what's happening in that process so
2: that process is driven by evaporation so the water um, evaporates out through special um, cells on the leaf surface called stomata cells and they open up and basically allow water to evaporate out and that creates a driving force and drags a, a column of water from the soil up to the leaves and it's released that way that the atmosphere. yeah
0: and so I know that when we look at a leaf, um, we describe the patterns as veins. Um, are they truly veins? Are they the things that are carrying the water through the plant?
2: Yeah, so there's kind of like two pathways for the water. So it goes mostly through, majority of the time it goes through these veins, so like the plumbing of the plant. Um, and then the last little part is it goes through living tissue, so that's kind of through the cells and in the cell walls and things like that. So Yeah.
1: So do the plants actually need water to survive, or do they just need water to exchange it to carbon dioxide, which they actually need to feed their cells to survive?
2: They need a little bit of water to survive themselves, but it's like 99% of the water that they move is just to exchange for carbon dioxide. So it's a huge huge problem for them to, to maintain that water. That's cool. Yeah.
1: So when they dry out, is it because they like don't have enough water? Because I always thought the plants are so dependent on water that when they shrivel up, it's because they're like losing all that moisture. Is that actually what's happening?
2: Yeah, well, they can kind of die for two reasons, I suppose. Um, firstly, because they're starving, so they're st- their pores are closed. So they ca- can close those pores if they're losing too much water. So they might stop that, and then they can't take any carbon dioxide in, so then they effectively starve themselves. Or the other process which we study in our lab is um, a problem when they get air bubbles in their water conducting tissue, and that happens when they're under a lot of there's a lot of tension in that column of water, and that kind of kills them faster. So they get like a like a um, yeah, but uh, yeah, like what we get in our veins, yeah, a blockage, an embolism.
1: Yeah. <laughs> awesome. That's really interesting. I can't believe it. I didn't know that.
0: So what is drought from a plant physiology perspective. I know that we talk a lot about drought in terms of um, farming or climate and basically I understand that just to mean we don't get very much rain but what does that mean from a plant's perspective?
2: Yeah from a plant's perspective it's if the soil um, like the concentration of content of water in the soil is getting less and less and less they need to kind of Work harder to draw the water out of the soil into their roots. So um, the way they do that is have a concentration. It's kind of like a concentration gradient. So the water column in the plant is under negative pressure. So it's under kind of tension. And then if the the um, plant has to be at a lower tension than the soil to, for it to pull it out of the soil. So if the soil water content is getting lower than the plant water kind of content has to get lower and lower. So they get more and more stressed as the soil dries yeah so
0: i guess it's that's osmosis that's the term so it's, it work,
2: yeah it works more like um more like diffusion i suppose yeah so it moves in through through a gradient so it's been pulled in yeah So you're talking about how
0: plants need water to be able to do photosynthesis, so that they can gain carbon to use to make sugars, to make, to be able to grow with, um, and that obviously all happens during the day when the sun is out. So, do plants, uh, pl- is water still important to plants during the night?
2: Yeah, so it's really important during the night, especially if they are uh, experiencing a bit of kind of drought stress, because that at that time during the night when they're not losing any water to the atmosphere or very little water to the atmosphere, they start to draw in water from the soil and they can actually equilibrate their kind of water status with that of the soil. So that's kind of a recovery time if there's some water available for them to be prepared for the next day of photosynthesis. So they sort of rehydrate during the night,
0: they're drinking up all night, getting ready for the next day's hard work? Yeah, Okay. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Whatever is
0: available, they'll take it up, yeah. So, what's more damaging to a plant? Um, Would it be a prolonged period of drought or would it be more multiple bursts of drought? Like, how does a plant respond to drought?
2: Yeah, so that's um, probably a bit of a question that people are looking into at the moment. So, whether there's a legacy of drought on on a plant. So, yeah, if you have multiple periods of drought and then recovery and drought and recovery, what does that mean for them? Um, And we would probably, I mean, I would think that that they we study. We're talking about cavitation before the blockages in the water conducting tissue, and um, we would ex- maybe expect that they that kind of causes an area of the water conducting tissue to be dysfunctional, and then it may not recover in most species. So then they're always carrying this this um, injury in, a, in effect. So then they have to grow more of this tissue to to be able to transport water again. So that could be a problem for them. Yeah. So,
0: you're saying that potentially in a period of drought, some of their veins may get damaged and they'll never recover, so they're sort of losing the number of straws that they can use to drink up the water.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, um, you know, there's a bit of research to show that maybe in some species they can recover this capacity again, but in, it seems like, most kind of trees and woody species that they don't, then they have to regrow there. There's, there's pipes in effects before they can function again, so it can i guess it's a it's a long term kind of problem, yeah,
1: I love that the straws to get like water up through <laughs> it's a good image um so when you're talking there about a plant and they'd have this damage and then they may never recover, you don't mean like one plant surviving multiple germs. You mean like the overall species that's inherited from like a parent plant? Mm. Like for someone who doesn't really know how plants are propagated and stuff, is that what you mean, or do you mean that?
2: Um, in that context, I was talking about to say uh, thinking about a tree that's yeah. got, got a big area of, of these pipes or straws or whatever you want to talk about. Um, but then if you're talking about different generations, I suppose we're talking about like thing plants species adapting to their environment. So then their offspring. Might be better suited to a, a dry place because they've got different kind of characteristics. But yeah. So do you
1: see that offspring, like plants, maybe with a shorter life cycle or something, that they do adapt over time compared to the more slow-growing, larger plants?
2: Mm. Yeah, I don't know if there's a difference between um, lifespan, like, like yeah, like that. But yeah, we definitely see um, people do studies, and you know, you see um, species um, adapted to their their growing conditions where they are found so yeah that's
1: awesome you're listening to that's what i call science we're talking with dr madeline cairns murphy i'm neve chapman i'm joined with kelsey pickard stay with us for just a moment we're going to be talking a little bit more about maddie's research
0: You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we're talking about drought. My name is Kelsey Pickard and I'm joined with Neve Chapman and our special guest Maddie Cairns-Murphy. So Maddie, you're an ecophysiologist, that's the term, the kind of scientist you are.
2: What is that and how does your research relate to how plants use water? Yeah, so I guess it just kind of means I'm interested in how plants interact <coughs> with their environment and what this means for their kind of physical function. Um, and I guess basically, I'm interested in how plants move water and when this process goes wrong. So, and that often goes badly wrong when plants are stressed with drought or with heat as well. So, that's my main yeah, my main interest. And it's becoming more and more relevant as everything gets drier and hotter. So, yeah, it's a pretty interesting time to be studying. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you measure drought damage
0: in a living plant? Like, what does your experiments mm. that it look like?
2: So um, we work a lot on actually trying to um, image and visualize this process of embolism. So the bubble forming in the water conducting tissue. Um, like in the past, it's been we've been kind of restricted to doing indirect measurements. So you might say you take a piece of a plant stem or something, and then you suspect it's got some damage in it. You try and force water through to see how much water can flow through normally, and then you know, and then flash out the bubbles and then see how how it flows to see how much damage there is. But um, in recent kind of years, people have developed ways of actually watching this process happen so we can do it um, different ways. So we use cameras to do that and also people use kind of like x-ray, so micro CT to to watch that process too. It's pretty cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah, It's
2: amazing using... That's amazing using
0: like almost medical mm. imaging equipment that yep. we would use in humans to study drought.
1: Yeah. Can I ask if like there's cause and effect experiments that where we look at if it's actually that air bubble embolism causing negative repercussions on the plants yeah
2: yeah yeah
1: like are there because like as a medical scientist we'd be like oh we think it's the plant's exposed to drought and then it forms an air bubble and then that may cause it to die or something does it actually happen
2: yeah 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 so um yeah we've done an experiment recently so we've you can kind of precisely work out the, the kind of drought stress threshold for the bubbles forming so we'd work out this threshold um using our you know that the way we do it visually, and then using images, and then we would say dry our plant down to this threshold, and then rewater and see if, it's, if it has actually died or not. Yeah, so we've done this with um, recently with flowers, and the the flowers definitely yeah died after the threshold was reached.
1: So it makes kind of sense that each plant might have a different amount yeah. of drought it can survive in.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of variation in those. Yeah, that's what we're really interested in. Check- um, yeah, analyzing the variation in these thresholds and even variation within a plant in the different parts of the plant
1: and is there like a scale of how much the plant or how well the plant can respond like so death being the worst outcome but also its ability to recover or Mm. like does it just like have a coping mechanism where it like shrivels up and then it's like oh wait i'm good now yeah it's going to bloom again and it will yield a full crop or whatever
2: yeah so there's kind of different stages of um drought stress so i guess the first major stage we think of is when the the pores in the leaf surface the stomata are closing so they close up early on to try and prevent any further damage and when that happens obviously they can't photosynthesize so they can't really grow and you know produce say it's a crop they're not going to produce a yield um so that's kind of the first stage but then if that stress um is still continuing on um they're still leaking a little bit of water so they'll keep getting more and more and more stressed and then eventually we'll see these other problems so they'll either starve or they'll these embolisms and then that will dehydrate the plant and it will dry yeah die yeah so how do you perform these experiments are you out in the
0: field um, imaging them in real time or are you in the glass house or in the lab
2: yeah so we've um, been doing a bit of a mix of all these things so uh, mostly I guess we started off imaging the 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 bubble formation in the lab. but I've been able to kind of do that in the glasshouse recently, which has been pretty exciting. So we're kind of doing in in plants in kind of, kind of more realistic conditions, um, and we can do that with the uh, the micro CT I was talking about before as well. So you can kind of have a, a whole plant kind of functioning as it would normally. But um, we've also been working on um, kind of technology and tools to be able to monitor, yeah, the levels of stress in the field as well recently, so that's an exciting kind of thing to be working on, yeah.
1: Awesome, so can I, I know, Kelsey, you're a bit into plants as well, It's your area of research. Can the two of you tell me the major parts of a plant and that, and like what parts are most likely to be affected by drought, maybe? So if we start.
2: Yeah, Um. so what the major kind of components. Uh well they start with the root system so that yeah that's obviously pulling the water from the soil and then it has the main support system the stem or the trunk um and then the leaves where all the kind of photosynthetic action happens and then if they've got you know in their reproductive part of the cycle they have their yeah flowers or fruit or yeah buds or whatever that they've got going there yeah. and
0: so are these different parts of the plant affected differently by drought or does the whole plant sort of suffer
2: yeah so th- we think that there are there is variation within the plant body to how that they um respond to drought so <clears throat> work we've been doing recently is looking particularly at the flowers and how they respond to drought and um we've been the species we've been working on it seems like the flowers are more vulnerable than the rest of the plant which is pretty interesting and it has you know serious kind of reproduction pretty problems for um agriculture and you know species survival and that kind of thing so yeah they seem like they're more vulnerable yep thanks
0: maddie so stay with us and in the next segment we'll be hearing about how all of this research relates to crop yield and what it mean, might mean for industry facing climate change
1: You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we're talking about the drought effects on plants. My name is Neve Chapman, and I'm joined with my awesome co-host Kelsey Picard and an expert guest, Dr. Maddie Kearns murphy from the University of Tasmania. So Kelsey, we've been talking a lot about um, how plants are affected by drought or water shortages, but I suppose in part three we like to say, well, so what? Why does this matter? So what are we talking about in this segment?
0: Yeah, well I was thinking when I was um, researching this topic about how Australia's just come out of what they say is a three to four year drought period um, so it's been a tough time for farmers and you've sort of been touching on the fact that if plants are under stress during important life cycle stages, like reproductive phases, you're going to affect potentially the crop yield. So, how how does this affect industry, and does your research um, work with industry at all?
2: Yeah, so it's um, some project I've been working on recently. We've got some funding um, to work with a local Tasmanian agro agribusiness to, to look into this problem. Um, and basically, you know, I guess the grand the grand plan is to be able to allow growers to get the most out of the irrigation and be able to, you know, irrigate at the right time and the kind of the right amount so that they can avoid things like these, you know, lo- losing yields or yield decline under kind of stressful weather conditions. Yeah, so, um, yeah, we've been kind of working out ways of well, – we started off by looking at what – maybe w- when is the most kind of vulnerable stage and it's going to affect yield and this work. Yeah. Um, found that the flower yeah like i was saying before the flowers are quite vulnerable to water stress and i guess the next logical thing after that is to to say well can we monitor water stress in in great detail in the field so people can to know when in real time when when to apply water and when they don't really need to so they can save resources in that way yeah
0: oh that sounds super useful um super applicable to the people who are actually trying to get a good yield so, can you what, what are the what are the plants you're working on? If you can tell us,
2: yeah. Um, so we've been focusing on pyrethrum. So it's like a looks like a daisy plant. So they grow a lot of that in the northwest of Tasmania and also in Ballarat, I believe. So, um, yeah, which has been a nice species to work on. Cause it's yeah, nice, big flowers and yeah, easy to work on.
0: And so pyrethrum—that's
2: the um, natural uh, pesticide—is yeah. that right? Yeah so they harvest um, the compounds pyrethrins from the flowers and that's a yeah just a natural kind of insecticide and insect insecticide yeah
1: would your research identify like particular climates rather than us trying to like predict things and then respond, does it also identify which climates are best for specific crops?
2: Yeah, and that's another kind of uh, overall goal of the kind of research that we do is to be able to make a, um, you know, prediction or build models to say, um, yeah, say in 20 years you would not want to put a crop here because the stresses might be too much and you're going to have to be putting in too many resources to maintain a crop. Um, Yes, yeah, so I guess that's yeah, that's definitely another end goal of the research, is to try and provide that kind of guidance for growers making decisions about where to, to, to establish crops.
1: So it seems kind of like, Maddie, your area of research looks um, like as a physiologist it looks at cause and effect of like the natural environment to natural plant as it currently exists Um, and then you know how does that change whereas uh, Kelsey is a plant geneticist and um, I'm sure many of us are aware that we eat genetically modified foods such as bananas and that kind of thing Um, do you think that your work could be used rather than um, trying to deal with all of these difficult environments could we not just genetically modify the crops that we eat most frequently in Australia or something and I feel free to either of you jump in on that
2: yeah, like I guess the, yeah. another part of the research that we do is to maybe work out which traits of the plant are most important for their survival and, and their um, productivity. So you might be able to give some guidance to people who are in plant breeding to say we want to, you know, if we can increase this trait or decrease this trait, we might be able to have crops that or, you know, na- native populations that can be more robust to the, the changing climate. So that's, yeah, definitely something that's important. Yeah, I think
0: um, I just want to firstly fact check you. Um, bananas are what we call genetically modified in terms of whether they're genetically engineered. They're not genetically engineered. They are clonally propagated, so they are genetically interesting. Um, they have been genetically modified through selection, but not through any of the new biotechnology. So, just so no one's going to get turned off eating bananas if they're afraid of these technologies. Not that they should be, but. I just thought I'd first cover that. I Um, love it, thank you. (laughs) It's all right. Secondly, yeah, from a plant breeder's perspective, if we can find traits or genes that are controlling these traits that are enabling plants to better withstand drought or perhaps um, the shape of these tubes that carry the water mean they don't get as many bubbles or if there's something that we can select for, then we would be really interested in selecting those and um, being able to get better crops for the farmers that can withstand um, these kind of changing climates. And I mean, nature sort of does this um, naturally over really long time scales. So certain plants can withstand drought because they've lived in those sort of environments for a really long time. And each time they make a set of seeds, only their most successful progeny will be able to live there. So it's, it's naturally selecting that way. But we are able to speed that process up and try and combat climate change-driven drought factors by doing our own breeding.
1: So in a planet where water is always a scarce resource, or f- particularly fresh water, could we get to the point, Maddie, through like your research, or like, like why aren't we just using micro-environments where you know, we make some sort of microclimate in a tent and everything's super controlled and we're optimizing how much water is being used? Like, is that another way where this yeah. could go towards uh, reducing the amount of scarce resources that are having to go into food production?
2: I guess that happens to some extent because a lot of crops are grown in yeah big glass houses under control conditions. But for other crops, it's probably not practical or possible. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a mix of those those options, yeah, definitely.
1: So, it's very dependent on the type of crop that yeah, you're looking at. So,
2: yeah, because some things, yeah, they just wouldn't, I don't think they would do well under, you know, they need certain conditions. So, yeah.
1: And how do you find the intersect of working in research with industry? Like, because research takes a very long time, mm. we're also a little bit um, keen to pursue something because of interest rather than specifically. This is definitely going to give me a, a better um, outcome. Mm. Um, do you find that working with industry presents new challenges or different ways of conducting research? Um,
2: yeah, it's been a really positive experience. It's kind of my first experience working in the industry, but. I've really, you know, kind of been really enjoy seeing um, the work that you do and, and see the the kind of more practical implications of it. I suppose so that's a nice nice side of it. Um, and I, I think people, the people we work with, have always been really enthusiastic about the, the stuff that we're doing. So I think that's yeah, it's been positive. And I think as, yeah, as far as I can see, um, industry we're really interested in research and development. If, you know, it's going to be a, a benefit. Yeah, overall.
1: Okay, that's all from us for now. Thank you for listening. And as always, if you've liked the show, please get in touch with us across all social media channels. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. That's what I call science or that's Science Taz. You can also find us wherever you listen to your podcast. If you're not already, subscribe to wherever you are listening. So that can be Spotify or others. Uh, my name is Neve Chapman. I'd like to thank my co-host, Kelsey Picard for all of her research on today's episode. It's been fascinating. And I'd like to thank our expert guest, Dr. Madeline King Kierne- Murphy. Until next time, thanks and goodbye. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at EDGE Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.